Hi, welcome to the Radiation Research Society vodcast. I'm Allison Burrell, and here today we're interviewing Allison Coyen, and she's from Emory University, a graduate student studying small cell lung cancer. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we would all like to congratulate you for the Marie Curie Award. Thank you so much. And we'd love to hear about your research. Yeah, um, first of all, I'm super excited to be here at this year's RRS meeting. And yeah, so I'm a graduate student at Emory University, and I'm working in the laboratory of Dr. David Yu. So our lab um, studies the DNA damage response and how its dysregulation uh, can be utilized for uh, targeted therapies uh, for cancer patients. And so specifically, my project focuses on small cell lung cancer. And so small cell lung cancer, um, as you'll uh, hear about later today, is a disease with very poor outcomes. So most patients uh, that typically present with the disease, uh, it normally has metastasized to a secondary site. Uh, so it's very difficult to treat. And so in the clinic, um, they really rely on not only radiation, but mainly chemotherapy in order to treat this cancer. And so initially, small cell responds very well to the first-line chemotherapeutic agents, but ultimately it becomes resistant to the chemotherapy and uh, patients experience um, tumor resistance and then recurrence, and then ultimately they will succumb to the disease. And so that kind of explains the poor outcomes associated with small cell lung cancer, um, the five-year survival rate is only 7%, and the median survival rate is 24 months. So particularly poor outcomes, I think um, it's, you know, it's one of the um, cancers with some of the worst outcomes uh, reported in uh, the American cancer facts and figures. And so it's really important to not only understand how we can better treat small cell lung cancer, but also, um, like, develop and uh, targeted therapies uh, for this cancer. There's currently no targeted therapy for small cells, so um, it's there's an urgent need to develop these. Yeah. yeah. Is this a familial type of cancer, or is it more spontaneous or a combination of both? Um, I believe it's uh, more spontaneous, but um, so I think small cell lung cancer um, has a couple of characteristic uh, mutations mainly through the loss of uh, p53 and rb but um, and i know some of those um, can be familial but i believe it is a spontaneous cancer yeah I, I... so what types of therapies are you researching in your lab that you're testing with with the small cell lung cancer yeah so um, we're focusing on the first line um, therapies for small cell lung cancer. So uh, they, in the clinic, usually use a combination of cisplatin or cisplatin analog with etoposide. So my project um, stemmed from performing two screens using um, siRNA libraries where you knock down a gene of interest in the presence of cisplatin treatment or etoposide treatment and then measure how the cell viability changes upon knockdown of certain genes and potentially identify candidates that can sensitize resistant small cell lung cancer cells to um, cisplatin or etoposide. Okay. So we're mainly focusing on those agents. Um, I know there are like other second line therapies available, but um, because the first line therapies do um, initially work so well and um, that's 
kind of the standard of care when the patients present with the disease. We're, we're mainly focusing on those, but definitely we could broaden the scope to the other second-line therapies as well. Um, are the second-line therapies like more radiation re uh, therapies or? Well, I know um, radiation um, can be used uh, particularly at like the site of the primary tumor, but the problem again with small cells that it's usually um, has metastasized to a secondary site. So you really do need the chemotherapy, mm -hmm. but it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's not really radiation related. It's more of a, a DNA damage. Um, focused project. Right, right. Um, does your lab ever use radiation to investigate the DNA damage? I mean, yeah, separate yeah, separate than... Oh yeah, well, no, we, we have, um, we're very interested also in um, the double strand break uh, response mm -hmm. as well. Um, we've published um, many uh, papers on, on that pathway as well and um, use radiation. And actually, you know, atoposide as a, a type 2 topoisomerase inhibitor uh, can function similarly and uh, cause uh, single strand, but as well as double strand breaks. So pathways uh, that are involved in mediating um, atoposide resistance may also have some relevance uh, for um, the response to radiation treatment. So, I mean, there is some uh, crosstalk there. With the cisplatin, though, it's a little bit of a different story, but yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so how far along in your project are you? When did you start in the lab? So um, in our first year, we do laboratory rotations. So I did my rotation back in 2014, um, and then I entered the lab officially in 2015 and um, started my thesis project. So you know, usually with the rotations, you work on something unrelated just to get a feel for the environment of the lab and see if it's a good place. Um, you know, it's, it's really nice actually because it's, it's kind of like you get to know what kind of environment you would be entering into as a graduate student. Um, and yeah, so my specific project, I really didn't start until 2015. So, you know, I'm entering my fifth year in my program, um, which is kind of getting towards the end. And I hope to um, publish on my project related to cisplatin resistance and atopicide resistance uh, moving forward. So I'm really looking forward to finishing up. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a great experience. I've learned a lot, um, and you know, I. I feel like, especially from a professional standpoint, it's been great to come to conferences like the RRS and present my work and get some feedback on what's going to strengthen uh, publication um, yeah. when I ultimately submit to so, some journals. Yeah, speaking of publications. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's mainly uh, focused right now on um, cisplatin and atopicide resistant small cell lung cancer cells. Okay. But um, we do have a collaborator with access to um, patient-derived xenografts for small cell lung cancer. Um, and so we're sort of weighing the options. Our lab does not typically perform animal studies, but we're um, considering doing that um, in the future to, especially to lend some more rationale for targeting some of these molecules um, in the clinic, if we can get some preclinical data in some animals in these patient-derived xenografts, um, it would be really, really interesting. And 
you know, push um, towards a potential novel therapeutic target or, or even just a biomarker for small cell lung cancer patients. So, I mean, of course, that's the goal. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, just working with cell lines, you, you miss out on a lot. You miss out on the response from the immune system. You miss out on, uh, like, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of different agents. Um, it's really hard to definitively conclude if it would be relevant in an in vivo system. So it's definitely like one of the weaknesses of my current work, um, and it's something that we hope to expand on. So do you think in the future, um, looking for biomarkers that are specific to um, being treated well with a certain type of um, chemotherapy, would that be something that, that your lab might look into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from the biomarker standpoint, um, even if um, we can't um, see a conference of uh, sensitization when we target a particular molecule, maybe that molecule is giving us a hint as to what pathway is being upregulated um, in response to the chemotherapy. And so we can measure like the levels of that molecule in a particular subset of patients and see how they might respond to certain therapeutics um, in the future. I guess that's kind of the whole idea behind the biomarker, um, but it's, it's still kind of a long way off at this point. So currently there are no biomarkers that you know of? Um, yeah, I, um, for small cell, probably are. Um, I know for a fact that the molecules I'm working on have not been characterized in that way, so that's always a good thing, but um, yeah, I not super knowledgeable about um, some of the specifics. I mean, you know, again, there, there's some characteristics, like, you know, the protein I'm uh, talking on today, EZH2, like, for example, it's highly overexpressed in small cell lung cancer, like, across the board. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, like, going to be very interesting um, if we can target it therapeutically because compared to the normal lung tissue, maybe where it's not as essential, it's going to be a lot easier uh, to target in the context of the cancer um, where it's not going to affect uh, the normal tissue. For our audience that's not going to be here for your talk, do you want to give a little synopsis of, of what you're speaking on today? Yeah, so um, today I am discussing the role of EZH2 in small cell lung cancer and how it mediates cisplatin resistance. Um, and I found a novel role um, of how it's functioning through the nucleotide excision repair pathway. So um, if you're not familiar with cisplatin, which is a little bit different than radiation treatment, what it does is it forms crosslinks um, on the DNA. And uh, normally, uh, this can be repaired um, by a number of pathways, but predominantly the nucleotide excision repair pathway. And uh, normally what happens is uh, the machinery will come in and um, uh, scan the DNA for crosslinks, bind to that crosslink, and then um, unwind the DNA uh, through helicase functions, and then exonucleases will come in and perform an incision of that crosslink, uh, remove the area of DNA that has been crosslinked by cisplatin, and then polymerase will come in and fill in the gap and virtually repair the DNA. So that's the idea of the pathway, and so our lab found in a screen uh, in small cell lung cancer that when you knock down EZH2, you get sensitization of cell lines that are normally resistant to uh, cisplatin treatment, um, 
so they become resensitized to the cisplatin upon loss of EZH2. And so um, from there, uh, we thought that EZH2 is likely mediating cisplatin resistance in some way. And because we know that NER pathway is important in terms of repairing cisplatin damage, uh, we wanted to explore that role. But of course, um, EZH2 is a well-studied protein. Um, it's been implicated in multiple DNA damage response pathways, uh, cell cycle uh, checkpoint dysregulation, proliferation dysregulation, um, as well as uh, some roles in the double strand break response. Uh, for example, the polycomb repressive complex number two does localize the sites of double strand break. Um, so we kind of wanted to see in an unbiased fashion how EZHU might be functioning in the DNA damage response, possibly to explain how it's mediating um, resistance uh, to cisplatin. And so uh, we performed a mass spec analysis and identified an interaction with an NER, uh, NER pathway protein DDB1. And we noticed that this interaction um, was occurring um, independent of DNA, independent of DNA damage, and that we were also able to uncover an interaction um, with another protein in the DDB1 complex, DDB2. And so um, finally, we looked at some um, readouts for the NER pathway and that we found that silencing of EZH2 seemed to um, promote uh, the direct target of the DDB1, DDB2 complex, which ironically is the ubiquitination of DDB2 itself, um, uh, which uh, promotes the completion of the NER pathway. So when you lose EZH2, it seems that it's destabilizing DDB2 in some way, um, but at the same time, um, it seems to be promoting the NER pathway because when you lose DDB2 or EZH, DDB1, EZH2 or the two together, you also get an epistasis uh, relationship where um, the knockdown of the two together seem to be sensitizing uh, small cell lung cancer cells as well as other cell lines um, to cisplatin or EV at a similar level. So, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, um, EZH2 seems to be sensitizing cells to processes that are normally repaired by NER, um, but also it seems to have more of a, a it seems to have a direct role in this pathway uh, through uh, stabilizing DDB2 in some way. Uh, so we're still um, actively investigating what the specific role is there, um, but it's interesting that now EZH2 not only has links to double strand break response and um, uh, uh, cell cycle dysregulation, but now also nucleotide excision repair. So that's essentially, yeah. So therapeutically, EZH2, if you were to upregulate it, it would help um, sensitize the cells to cisplatin? No, so um, you want to you want to down. So oh, we're using sRNA to deplete the EZH2, oh, okay. um, and then also you can use an EZH2 inhibitor. And actually, it's really exciting. Yeah, well, it's really exciting too because a lot of um, there are several EZH2 inhibitors that have been developed mm -hmm. uh, to inhibit its catalytic activity specifically. Um, and um, some of them are undergoing uh, studies in phase one, phase two clinical trials. So, you know, if these drugs are successful, um, they could potentially be repurposed for small cell lung cancer. Um, in if, conjunction with the cisplatin. In conjunction, yeah, with the cisplatin. And yeah. That's exciting. That would be really great. Um, so you're working now on small cell lung cancer, but prior to graduate school, you were a postdoc at the NIH? Yes. 
And were you doing similar research, or what was Not your project? Not at all. I was doing cancer research, but I was studying um, metastasis, actually, um, of osteo osteosarcoma. Um, and I was doing a lot of animal work, so totally different from what I'm doing now. But I was in the um, National Cancer Institute, and um, basically working on a project that was more toward the side of uh, clinical trials where uh, we were studying um, the role of translation initiation in highly metastatic osteosarcoma cells and also studying how this could be targeted by um, a drug rapamycin. So. Do you think for undergrads that are thinking about going to graduate school mm -hmm. that doing something an internship like a post-bac mm -hmm. is a good idea in preparation for graduate school? Do you think it prepared you better for starting a program um, or a project on your own? Absolutely. Um, so I guess I started as an undergrad um, on research and I you know, was working in a lab at Carnegie Mellon, but I was highly supervised by a postdoctoral fellow and, you know, with only limited hours and you know not working full-time in the lab it was really hard to get a sense of what it, effort is needed to drive and what creativity is needed to drive a project to completion so when I entered the postbac program you know I, I had some experience in cancer research but it was very tangential um, I, I knew I was interested and I knew I wanted to um, pursue graduate work in that but um, I had been working in Drosophila and I had never really um, been exposed uh, to cell culture, anything like that, which is a very important skill in the field of cancer research. And so, yeah, um, I, I learned a lot. I was working in the lab full time. I was driving the project on my own. Um, I got a lot of independence um, very quickly and was coming up with my own ideas and testing those out. And, you know, I think entering graduate school, you know, it's still a training environment. People are still willing to like take the time and teach you the assays and show you the ropes, which is really nice. But I felt very confident coming into graduate school that I knew what to expect out of um, working in the lab and, you know, driving the project to completion and also just confidence in my own ideas. Um, because, um, you know, towards the end of my post-bac, um, you know, I helped um, prepare a manuscript for publication and I kind of understood what that process was like and I think it was just really excellent preparation. Now, being away from uh, coursework for a couple of years was difficult, so coming back and immediately having to start taking exams and things like that, you know, maybe I wasn't... Um, uh, as fresh as if I had been coming directly off of my undergrad because um, I had taken two years off just to work in the lab, not taking any classes. But um, once the coursework ended, I mean, I feel like I'm really in my element and, um, you know, Everyone has a different um, philosophy on how to train graduate students. Like you can find an advisor that's very hands-on or very hands-off, but I think in the end, like it's your career um, that you're working for. Um, you have to be proactive, you have to be independent. And I think working at the NIH just really taught me those skills and um, just how to come up with my own ideas. And then, you know, so really like when I talk to my uh, PI, you know, it's it's, what I hope is that it's more on the level of like colleagues as opposed to, you know, me just asking 
tell me what to do. Right, right. So that I feel like I, you know, of course, I'm not completely done. I'm not graduated. I'm not like I'm not a faculty or anything like that. But I feel like you know, more confident, more prepared, and you know, I, I had a really fun time doing my rotations too. Like you know, starting um, on new projects, I felt like I could adapt really well um, when I entered those labs and like could pick up on things faster because I was kind of familiar with um, juggling different kinds of science. Like I, I went from Drosophila work to metastasis work and then I was put in all these different environments and I was able to like pick up on it really fast um, as opposed to like the very first time I, I was um, like entered my post-bac lab and I, I was very unfamiliar with the research and you know it took some time to acclimate to but I think you know the more you switch fields and the more uh, different fields you become exposed to you start to see like patterns and how to answer some of these important questions and I really just you know I enjoy learning I enjoy learning different ways to address questions and I think I think my background has helped me a lot because I, I never would have thought I would have ended up in a DNA damage response lab, but you know I enjoy it. I enjoy solving all kinds of puzzles, so it's it's been really fun. I think that's really good advice for graduate students: is that you don't know exactly. You might have an idea of what kind of research that you want to do mm -hmm. when you start out, but you never really know where you're going to end up. I also started in cancer genetics and, and ended up in radiation oncology and radiation biology. And, and I, it, it was going through rotations and experiencing different labs that made me make the choice to try something completely different than I had originally set out to. Yeah. Even cancer biology wasn't my original pathway. And oh, yeah, yeah um, but, but I find it, you know, obviously very interesting now. And, um, Let's see. Um, so moving forward, since you're you're coming towards uh, the end of your graduate degree, so you would like to, it seems, planning on um, doing a postdoc. Yeah. So I I really do enjoy the bench work. I know a I lot can of. Tell by the way you talk about it, that you're very passionate. Well, it's it's exciting, especially when you make a big breakthrough. Um, I feel like you know, just like jumping up and down and mm -hmm. celebrating. Um, of course, the work is not easy and it's incredibly demanding. So, you know, if I can keep it going, you know, I would love, um, you know, I love the flexibility of academia. I love the creativity that goes into it. Um, I'm also considering, um, you know, alternative career options. I think it's always smart to consider alternative careers, because, particularly because academia is so competitive and lifelong postdoc positions are not ideal. Um, I think I'd also really enjoy industry because it would combine the bench work aspect that I love um, and then also the translational components um, of my research uh, that I also enjoy and have a lot of background in. Um, but you know, academia has been great. It's it's um, it does involve a lot of sacrifice, you know, long hours on weekends and things like that. But I I also think it's a lot of fun. You know, you're testing your ideas out, and you know, it's it's just so creative and exciting. And and when you find something, there's there's no cooler feeling. Have you thought about what kind of postdoc you want to do? Do you think you're going to stay with a similar project to what you're working on? Or are you going to take the same perspective that you took 
coming out of your post back and into graduate school and try something different and learn a new field? Um, I do enjoy learning about new fields for sure. Um, so I think I'm gonna take that aspect with me at the next stage. But I think um, I do want to keep an aspect of my previous training with me because I think it's important in a postdoc to come in with your own project uh, so you can transition to independence. Mm -hmm. So I think bringing some of my own expertise to a new question would be my ideal um, scenario, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, now, how that's going to manifest, I'm not entirely sure. It's going to depend on where positions are available and so on. I, I'm really enjoying studying the interface of uh, chromatin biology and uh, the DNA damage response. That's an area I've considered. But I know also in today's day and age, like bioinformatics has become really important. And um, you know, finding some way to pick up some training in that area would also be really interesting. But I, I do think I want to stick with the cancer research. Thank you so much, Allison, for coming and speaking with us. It was a pleasure to learn about your research and, you. um, and, and hear your insights about graduate school and all you know, advice to give to future graduate students as well. Thanks. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you.